Black Ball on Fillmore Street. A salute and celebration of over 100 years of San Francisco's unique and diverse contribution to jazz, blues, and dance. Come on over to the city's Jazz Heritage Corridor. Enjoy the special vibe that resonates along the new Fillmore scene, presenting both historic and new shops, eclectic selections of cuisine, spirited music from Dosas, Rosellas, Sheba Lounge, Yoshi's, and 1300 on the Fillmore set. Check your dance moves on the Fillmore Plaza's big screen swing dance show while taking in the emerging artwork at the Lush Life Gallery and New Media Center. This special celebration takes place October 17th from 7.30 to 2 a.m. Break out your finest pre-Halloween Blackhawk tour and spend an evening getting to know the heart and soul of the city, the Fillmore at the Cool Black. Hey, hold it. I asked you not to run that anymore. It's been canceled. That doesn't exist any longer. Jazz Heritage Center is located within the new Fillmore Heritage Center in the heart of the historic Fillmore Jazz Preservation District. It's San Francisco's only permanent cultural and educational complex dedicated to jazz. The nonprofit Jazz Heritage Center is part jazz museum, part jazz cultural center, and part jazz art gallery. By showcasing art and historical exhibitions, concerts, films, and youth programming, the Jazz Heritage Center's mission is to preserve and promote jazz, an American national treasure, while celebrating its presence as an active, living art form. The Jazz Heritage Center includes the Lush Life Gallery and Take 5 Gift Shop, located at 1320 Fillmore Street, and the Corette Heritage Lobby. The Jazz Heritage Center is proud to announce the phasing in of the Screen Room and Educational Lab. Please join us for a visit at our website. Cut! 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 Those places are closed! Ladies and gentlemen, in June of 1941, President Roosevelt, at the urging of A. Philip Randolph, signed Executive Order 8802. This created the Fair Employment Practice Committee, essentially mandating that any government agency or corporation handling federal contracts must hire blacks and women. As Pearl Harbor lay burning in December of 1941, Kaiser Bechtel Bethlehem, among others, opened their shipbuilding facilities to hundreds of thousands of African-Americans unable to work previously to help build the more than 2,500 Liberty and Victory ships needed to win World War II. African-Americans who'd been voting Republican were now voting Democrat. Welcome back to part four of Harlem of the West, the making of character in the community. Fillmore was the main street of San Francisco. San Francisco was a well-kept secret until the early 1940s, when American involvement in World War II created a boom economy that brought thousands of people to California and the San Francisco Bay Area. Among these newcomers were some 40,000 African Americans eager for an opportunity to earn decent wages for their labor. The rich cultural heritage that arrived with these immigrants sparked a lively chapter in the history of San Francisco. Life was good, and they thought it would last forever. San Francisco was a nice social climate. It was small, so everybody could get around, and there was a lot of clubs, so it was friendlier than most cities. 
San Francisco was a great place to be at that time. It was probably the most exciting city in America. They have more jazz here, live jazz. Uh, was incredible, especially in the film war. With our after-hour spots, this was the greatest convention town in the country during that particular uh, era. And so uh, you'd have people from all walks of life, from all over the country, from all over the world would come here, and they'd come out into the film war. Meanwhile, the fledgling black community was thriving. What happened was, this is the reason that they, the only place in San Francisco that there was housing was what had been Japantown. And right after Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese were interned, simultaneously the shipyards in Hunters Point and in Richmond and Oakland and Vallejo were looking for people to work. And that's why there was this big migration from the South and the Midwest. Yeah. So that was where there were all these boarding houses. That was an entertainment area, so almost immediately in 1942, there were seven or eight jazz clubs, which is pretty amazing, and made audience because people, you know, brought with them their musical tastes and cultural tastes and religious, you know, they, there were churches, there were restaurants. On Fillmore, there were two black-owned hotels. Some of the after hours, many of the people that would play downtown, like if Ella Fitzgerald or, or Billy Holiday was playing, they couldn't stay in the hotels where they were playing, so they would go back to the Fillmore and the musicians would then come and jam afterwards. And KPOO.com around the world. Good morning, everyone. This is yours truly, Bobby Spider Webb, spending them for you this morning and every Tuesday morning from 9 a.m. until 12 noon. Bob City, see what People don't understand, I don't realize, Bob City was a nice bar, but it was mostly, it was more or less an after-hour bar. And after hours, a lot of the famous musicians that would come into San Francisco and play at different venues here in the city, they'd wind up at Bob City. And they'd have jam sessions. I'm talking about Miles, I'm talking about a lot of the great guys. Mm. Bob City was the place to go after your gig. Mm. Charles Sullivan's brother, Marion, also knew him well. Pop City was originally, originally called Boot City. And when my brother sued Slim Gillen and took possession of it, he, he didn't want it, so he called his friend Jumbo. He was working as a car salesman at the Hall Street A.S. on the Van S. And uh, my brother called Jumbo and asked him, if he wanted it, he gave it to him. Bonnie Simon remembers. This building is the building, the structure where Jimbo's nightclub was located. But the building itself was located on a post right near Laguna. That, that building that they were in was rolled down. That, that building was Bob City. It was rolled down Post Street to Philomore Street. As you walked in to the club, 
there was a little coffee shop on the side. And across from the counter of the coffee shop, there was usually a fellow, winter or summer, and a large top coat. And with, inside that top coat, he had pockets where he would sell you pint or half pint of liquor. So you'd get the half pint or pint from him, and you'd get your coffee, and that would be your beverage for the evening. You ran out, you go back out and get get another pint or half pint from him. Uh, now he was Jimbo's man, incidentally, so he wasn't working independently. But it was an interesting arrangement. Jimbo was a good businessman. He was very sharp. This is John Handy, standing in the spot where a Bob City photo for Harlem of the West was taken. This is approximately where we stood um, and performed at Bob City, about here. Yeah. Maybe a little farther up this way. Bandstand, I'd be in the way of the piano and uh, drums. Drums are right here, piano and bass was there, piano was like that. Mm -hmm. was on there. John was not John Coltrane then. You know, it was, he had the name, but he was not. And he was a young man. I believe that was the first, I know it was the first time I met him, but I don't know if, I'm trying to recall whether, whether it was the first time we were on the bandstand together. But we were just having a jam session, and uh, I don't know who was playing the piano, I don't remember. And I knew Pointy Poindexter, who on that cover is actually playing, the only one performing, you know, taking a solo. Then next to him is John Coltrane and Frank Fisher. And I think Frank and John were going the same year. Frank is still alive, still playing trumpet, and still writing arrangements here in the Bay Area. John being a little bit older, probably 24 or 5 at the time, and, and I was just out of high school. So uh, that's, that was the first time I met him. And that's where the picture on the cover, apparently somebody shot a picture, I don't remember it. Errol Burroughs, also known as Happy Feet, was a mainstay on the Fillmore Corridor as an entertainer, both at the Premalon Ballroom and the Ellis Street Theater for the talent shows, frequently giving Johnny Mathis and Sugar Pie DeSanto a run for their money. Earl, a former singer with the Platters, spent many years as Jack Hammer in Europe. In the building that once housed Bob City, I sat with this family, and we reminisced over some of the old days in Fillmore. That was, you know, I was an entertainer from get-go. Yeah. That's what I was doing. But, oh, I, I was a professional roller skater, uh -huh. but was no money in it. <laughs> yeah. No, no money in it. No, there. Yeah. And I discovered I could sing mm -hmm. and write songs. I said, well, hell, this yeah. is where I'm going. <laughs> so at 15, I was already getting... Contracts for singing oh, really? and writing. Dropped the roller skates <laughs> and the film all the film all. What song got him out of California? He said. You shake my nerves and you rattle oh, my right. brain. Okay. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill! Goodness gracious, great balls of fire! <laughs> <laughs> Bang, number one all. Stupid songs. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I came up with. Stupid songs. Okay. Everyone I came out with, bang. Mm -hmm. You know, that's.
That's what the kids wanted. And I, str I struck on that as an accident. Really? When all, all the other writers were writing stuff like, Blue Moon, you saw me standing alone. People don't sing that anymore. Yeah. It's too sophisticated. If you, want <laughs> if you want to recognize, you got to sing for these kids. And that's what I, I did. Wow. That was, that was clever. Well, survival of the fittest. Yeah. She said that Blue Moon was a hit when Billy Eckstein sang. Yeah, Billy Eckstein yeah. sung that, yeah. Uh, Blue Moon, the era that Billy Eckstein lived in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All those songs are very romantic. Right. Yeah. He sung yeah. romantic songs. Can you imitate him? Well, I used to do all those. I mean, you know, I used to be a Yeah. Player. Let's hear you imitate that song. Yeah, you ask him. He's not going to tell you. I don't remember now. I haven't done that stuff before. He has it so good. I know. What about Sammy? Sammy Davis. Yeah, I did all the, I did all that stuff in the Fillmore. Yeah. Don't you remember? Yep. You couldn't get in. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't even in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, you but I remember as a kid hearing him sound like Billy no. Eckstein. Oh, okay. In the house. In the Billy house. Eckstein. Well, he was the one I liked to do. Yeah, he oh, could do yeah. it good. I remember that. Oh, yeah. I know if I'm in love with you. Even though you say that we are through without your love. I didn't know he could say I that. just can't go on. Yeah, Billy Eckstein had it. That baritone voice of Billy. Yes. But, uh, that was, you know, I was an entertainer from get-go. Yeah. That's what I was doing, but. Mm -hmm. Was the Fillmore jumping in in 51, 52? Yeah, that's when all those clubs was in. Yeah. The 60s were jumping. Well, yeah, yeah, the 60s, 60s were jumping. Well, you know what well, I remember I about the 60s on the Fillmore? What? Is that we'd be walking down Fillmore Street, and it was, like, so packed. Mm -hmm. It was like the cars were just, it was traffic jams on a Saturday night. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And everybody would be yelling, where's the party? Uh -huh. <laughs> and she'd be out there trying to look at yeah. yeah. That's my daddy. Because I remember, like, there were certain restaurants or little shops that yeah. were just, like, right. you know, the best place to go or something. Yeah, what was yeah. the name of the barbecue place on film? Oh, Leonard's. Leonard's. Leonard's, yeah. Yes. It was like a been... line out the door. Right. And then Do down, further that, down the street, yeah. they had this, mm -hmm. this day. Dance hall. Remember that? Charles so, so Brown. It was right it's a blue saying of Charles Brown. Yeah, Merry yeah. Christmas. Right, Merry Christmas. Yeah. Oh, Merry yeah. Christmas, yeah. pretty yeah. baby. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, did you know Charles Brown? Charles Brown. Right. Charles Brown. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas baby. pretty baby. Oh, yeah, everybody knew Charles you Brown. You know, you still look good. To did you ever sing that, Jack? <laughs> did no. you ever sing Merry Christmas? No. Oh, uh huh. Because he was too good at it. Is oh, that right? Oh, I see. There are some songs that belong to. To say that you don't do right out of respect. Yeah. Right, right, right. But you can't singer. sing in that King exactly. Cole song. He's you know, saying, he oh, the singer is so good at oh, really? that, it oh, really? becomes part of his I want him to sing. His entourage, you know. Right, that right. that King Cole song? Yeah. It would be an insult to Mona Lisa? go up there and try to sing it behind It was him. another song. Nat what King about Cole the, came uh, to City College, telling you? Yeah, but he came to City College and performed. Well, straighten yeah. up and fly right. That's okay. what he was doing. Okay. Straighten up and fly right. Matt Kinko. Yeah. Straighten up and fly. Can you sing that? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one thing, Jack, you sung with the Flatters, right? Yeah. Can you sing any of their songs? Do you remember any of their songs? What did they sing? Only You, My Prayer, The Great Pretender, Twilight Only Time. Only You. 
Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. You know, the Jack's daughter, you know it. <laughs> Go ahead, sing. I know it. You just start. She knows it. She knows it. That's it. Can make my dreams come true. Only you. Right. You know, there's there was a Chitlin circuit was sort of happening in effect, followed them. It's funny you mentioned Seattle. In the Starbucks in the central area of Seattle, I remember they had a display and the pictures look exactly like they did in the film you know, the same people, the Duke Ellington and a whole bunch of people. Back Charles Sullivan was the promoter. He was one of the biggest promoters west of the Mississippi. He, he probably was, in many cases, responsible for people being able to tour from San Diego all the way up to Seattle, so we parked uh, to the east. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Fillmore Auditorium. It's showtime. Brought to you by none other than the Charles Sullivan Entertainment Group. The story of the Fillmore would not be complete without the story of Charles Sullivan and the Fillmore Auditorium. Mr. Sullivan had left Alabama as a young man in 1940, headed for California to find work. He landed in Los Angeles, but soon found himself working in the Hunters Point shipyard. Apparently an enterprising young man, he set up house in San Mateo. Soon, he and his wife at the time, Viola, were running Club Sullivan and San Mateo. By 1944, he had begun to bring his 10 siblings out of Alabama and into the San Francisco area. His younger brother, Richard, picks up the story from there. A lot of people jokingly call him the mayor of Gilmore because of many enterprises that he was involved in. He also, him and Marion, developed a large jukebox business where they had jukeboxes in places all over the city and just about in any jukebox in the Western Edition belonged to uh, the Sullivans. When did he actually move to San Francisco and get started with the Fillmore Auditorium? Uh, my, my life in this started about 1944. Uh, Charles had uh, bought Club Sullivan in uh, San Mateo, but it didn't have a liquor license. With a African-American trying to get a liquor license in 1944 was very hard. So through a white friend of him, Colette, they bought a rare old railroad station in Miramar, California, which is three miles north of Half Moon Bay. With that came a house. They bought it to get the liquor license, but it came with two building their old railroad station and a house. So with that, he, he could move the liquor license to San Mateo. So he had the house, so he decided to bring all the rest of the family from uh, Alabama to uh California, there were 10 of us. My older sister had came out and lived with him and his first wife for, for a while. Before that, the rest of us came out in 1944. I was four years old. Later on, as all the other siblings, my sister Gertrude and my two brothers Horace and Marion, as, as they completed high school, they came north to San Francisco to work uh, with Charles and many of his activities. Horace worked with him at, uh, he had Sullivan Liquor Store on Post Street near Laguna, which was the first liquor store in San Francisco to deliver. Horace worked with him a lot in that, and, and Marion worked also with him in the music business.
Texas and got a master lease on what was what became the Fillmore Auditorium. And he yes. started promoting African-American music all over the West Coast. People like James Brown and Fats Domino and all that. And I, but I've seen, I saw my James Brown a lot of times and Fats Domino a lot of times. I can Tina Turner, saw, saw a lot of acts. But he was also involved in the in the nightlife. Uh, he had uh, at the Booker T. Washington Hotel was where most of the black artists stayed in those days. He had the lounge. You know, he was heavily involved with uh, with Jimbo in Bob City. It, it was almost impossible for anybody to bring in a uh, African American act on the West Coast without going through Charles at that time. Mm-hmm. At the height at the height of his when when the film auditorium was going strong and the, and the music was coming west, he actually was a person probably that brought the chilling circuit to the West Coast, put it that way. Mm-hmm. I assisted him do the doors at, at the film auditorium. Okay, and up to that point, you know, he was he was he was one of the main entrepreneurs in in the film district. I've served on boards, national boards chairman of every organization I ever belonged to, including white organizations. I just retired from the major San Francisco corporation in February of 08. I was the first black man in the history of San Francisco to be appointed to the Public Utilities Commission, chair, Municipal Transportation Agency, chair, NorCal Waste System, chair, first black man to chair the Convention and Business Bureau in San Francisco, chair. The voice of H. Walden Flynn. <laughs> and we started a little firm called McCoy, Ozan, and Flynn. We started practice to go to Fillmore and Geary. Gilmore's. Gilmore? Uh-huh. Well, I bought Gilmore's liquor store for him. I did Booker T, Washington <laughs> Hotel, Jumbo, Dr. Hambrick, Dr. Nixon, Dr. Carter. I did Sullivan's work. In fact, I administered his estate when he passed. He performed all those people at the Fillmore Auditorium. They were right on the corner of Fillmore and Geary, upstairs. Our office was right across the street. Oh, sure, every musician you can think of, black especially, and some whites, Charles Sullivan brought him to the West Coast. Oh, he was the kingpin for the music industry. No question about that. Ray Charles wouldn't come any party, wouldn't play for anybody in San Francisco but Charles Sullivan. Nobody. Charles Sullivan's brother, Marion. So I just told him the name is Dance Hall to film Auditorium. Some, some of my favorite, favorite acts was Lil Richard, B.B. King, Louis Jordan, Etta James, Al Hampton, Sugar Party Santo, Willie John. Oh, Vivian and uh, that's uh, Maya Angelou's mother. Yeah. 
You know, Mike, you angle on? Yeah. Uh-huh. And some other Vivian. That was Cardell Jackson's wife. Yeah. Cardell had the gambling joint around the corner. I worked with him. Yeah. Right after the war. Uh-huh. I quit the island. I walked off the island. And that was before my old got married and went to Africa, right? Yeah. She was a young girl here. Mm-hmm. Before she got married and went to Africa. And had a kid. Yeah. She called him last year. No. She was here for a book signing. Oh. And she called him. Oh. And when she says, Mr. Dr. Angelo, I thought it was somebody just trying to be smart. Uh, uh, Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. oh my goodness, I thought it was somebody just trying to be smart. <laughs> he talking about my you. Where you been? Yeah, Now I used to take her to school. Oh, yeah? Yeah, right over here at the girl's high, right there on the fair. Everybody who was somebody came through the Blue Mirror, and uh, it was a place to go. It was, and, and Leola and had a great crew. It was just great. Those days were irreplaceable. The Queen of Fillmore. Listen, I had all the famous people. Oh God! Oh, I was a hot potato. But honey, this was heaven to me. This place was oh. It took me by storm. I, look, when I got up in the morning dressing, when I saw my parents, everybody, you gotta be dressed. You can't go out there looking like that with them ragged clothes. You gotta look good, you gotta look good. They kept me in fashion. Because I got the barbecue pit, I got the bar, and I'm making plenty money. I'm driving a Maserati, okay. <laughs> Ooh, I was tough. Birdcage was very popular. I had, oh, I, I had so many musicians working. Duke was a friend of mine, Cap Calloway, Charles Brown. The people that come to my club entertained in my club. I mean, they just get on the stage and stay on the stage all night. And you know what? I went into the real estate business, but I got so good at it. I was about buying at night with a flashlight. And I sold and made over $5 million. I had big money. I was rich. Cars, fur coats, you name it. Trip to your Paris. Then what, what happened? Hmm? Then what happened? I took my club and took it. <laughs> sold it to somebody and I didn't know they had sold it. That's how they got my mansion, Scott. Oh, the domain? Yeah. I'm with Bonnie Simon. We're here on Avery Street, which has been renamed to Boswell Street in honor of Reverend Hamilton T. Boswell, the leading pastor 
for Jones Memorial Methodist Church for 29 years. Bonnie is standing here at the back door of what was the long bar, which had its front door on Fillmore. Bonnie shares a bit about that history on Avery Street. This is where the exit, the back door for the, for the long bar was, right here. And the entertainers used to come outside here to catch some air after they get off stage, right here. This place was owned and operated by a guy called Shirley, as Shirley Temple, Corlett. He owned it. As a matter of fact, he owned most of what was going on underground in the, in the Fillmore. You had Billy Eckstein, Dinah Washington, and uh, just to name a few, I'm not sure, I think Ella Fitzgerald appeared here also. But all of your top artists. Now, I think some of them would appear downtown, but this was an exciting thing to come in here. Shirley ran this, I forget what year. Either he closed or they closed it. Shirley went on and bought the Booker T. Washington Hotel. Shirley Corlett seems to be a name to remember. It's fascinating how the Fillmore attracted mainstream America into the corridor. I remember seeing photos that Leola King had shown me of people like Edward G. Robinson. Humphrey Bogart shot part of the film Dark Passage right there at Post and Avery Street. Yeah. Robin Mitchum was a regular. Folks had seen Marilyn Monroe visiting Bob City. Sammy Davis, I think the Rat Pack would hang out there. Sammy Davis sitting in with one of the bands playing bongos. Yeah, Lawford, Sinatra, and Joey Bishop. But I was interested in your film, I remember seeing, and I think it was, you were filming sort of at the, the height of this renaissance, where there are all these clubs and things happening, and I remember when you screened that film, I was noticing all those places that you highlighted were gone and failed, you know, which was really sad. And those clubs, the Long Bar, the Plantation Supper Club, the New Orleans, all of those places, you know, they, they were done, particularly after Mr. Sullivan was killed. Because uh-huh. you're right, he, he was the man, he was the mayor, he financed a lot of things. He did run that circuit from British Columbia, Vancouver, all the way down to, you know, the L.A. Basin and around to El Paso, Texas. By 68, 69, that was all history at that point. Senior, co-founder and vice president and musical director, composer, arranger, recording artist, and jazz historian. And I'm excited to tell you about the Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors to create excitement and rejuvenate jazz through jazz history workshops, jam sessions, and jazz production workshops. To showcase the jazz projects from the workshops presented featuring local artists for the Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors. We're going to inspire a jazz renaissance to transform the old Fillmore Jazz Preservation District and bring back a new Fillmore Jazz District by spreading jazz throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. 
So you can contact me at dhardiman2001-2000 at yahoo.com. That's D-H-A-R-D-I-M-A-N-2001-2000 at yahoo.com or 510-275-3688. I can't wait to tell you about the Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors' new Fillmore Jazz District. And it's like the song that's playing now for my big band. It'll be all right. Booker T. Washington Hotel was originally the Edison Hotel. Edison. It was operated at that time by Shirley Collette. Shirley Collette. I did his books. I did his work. And when a Jewish fella leased it, his name was George Bush. And he had formerly owned the Blackhawk. That's where all the Miles and everybody played. Yeah. Turk and Hyde. Yeah. Yeah. Bush owned the Blackhawk. Uh-huh. And he had, it changed to Black. He had named, Bush had named it the Stark Club. Huh. And he got sued by the fellow who owned the Stark Club in New York and it became the Blackhawk. That's right. Wow. And he bought, he leased Booker T. Uh. Uh, Mr. Bush did. Uh-huh. And of course, the, that was about the only place in town anybody, any of the musicians stayed except Duke. Uh-huh. Duke didn't stay there, he uh-huh. stayed at the family. And Nat didn't stay there, but the side men all stayed at Booker T. Dinah Washington. When Dinah would leave the hotel, she'd tip all the bellboys and everybody, you know, everybody that check. And then she rehearsed there, you know, in the middle of the day. Well, hell, that bar was jumping, because Dinah would come down and pedal pushers be rehearsing, you know, in, in the uh, bar there. And of course, everybody came in to hear Dinah. Y'all have stayed there. Y'all have stayed there. Shirley Collette was known as the big boss of the Fillmore District, always traveling with bodyguards. According to Herb Kane, Corlett didn't even trust Banks to handle his loot. As Kane puts it, he had plenty of it in the Edison Hotel vault known as quote-unquote cold cash. Corlette had his hand in virtually everything that went on on the Fillmore Corridor. He sued Billie Holiday for $30,000 when she refused to perform a contract at the Long Bar for $1,000 a night. So the back of that book, uh, Harlem West, the back of that book is you and Billie Holiday. Yeah. That's you uh, on the back of the uh, the Harlem of the West book. Uh, yeah. Wow. Really? So you didn't go to jail when Billy Holiday got busted over here? I was with her in the morning. I was just saying, did you go to jail? No, I didn't go to jail because I didn't go with him. We was in the plantation, and they tried to get me to get in the car with them. That was Billy Holiday's Lanka. Right. They got in the car at the plantation, but we had been in the back room. All night, after 2 o'clock, my car was parked in front of Jack's. Mm-hmm. Well, I left it out of where I'd gotten the car with them. When I'd have went to jail with them by the way up there. But them come move my car because I won't get no tickets. So that's how you escape, escape from going to the penitentiary? Yeah, I'd have been in that car with them. Where did they send out of prison? 
They sent her to in Kentucky somewhere down there. Oh, okay. A rehabilitation thing. Okay. Like. But me and Billy, well, I met Billy in New York. And when she came here, she used to come to Jackson to see me damn near every day. The guy Billy McDowell said that she did never have a career. She just could sing. And she never made no money. He said, out of her whole career. Well, she made money, but guess who got the money? He said, that manager. Black man took taking the money. He said, all she. She made him buy the Lincoln. No, I'm saying, uh, Jimmy McDowell told me all Billy Holiday got out of her entire career was that Lincoln. That's and all. she couldn't even drive. But look. I said, couldn't drive. No, said, she couldn't drive. That's what, that's what Jimmy told me. I know she couldn't. I was at the club Alabama at the time. The New Orleans Swing Club just had opened up across the street right in front of me. Billy Holiday, that's where she came. Okay. Right after Cab Calloway. She came and sang And during the, the two weeks she was there, this white guy showed up. And that's where they fell out right here. Yeah. And that's where he lost her. He was trying to get but her. But she was already strung out then, though. Yeah, she was strung out. She was strung out then. That's what it was. Boy, then. she could sing. Very talented, pretty woman, but she, he said he started giving her that drugs from day one. Yeah. And stole all of her music and her talent, but money. she got nothing. She ain't getting nothing out of it. Yeah, that's the way it was in the movie. That's right. Jimmy McDowell was Simon King's role manager? Yeah. Yeah, he was Simon King's role manager. Jimmy was. Shirley Corlette died in a Springfield, Missouri prison in and about 1956 after being convicted on tax evasion. Yeah, I mean, definitely I was lucky, unlike most of my friends whose parents in the suburbs had pretty terrible musical taste. My mom's favorite singer was Johnny Mathis. My dad listened to R&B, soul, jazz, and then, you know, like Beatles and Cream and those kinds of bands. Mm -hmm. um, there's a photograph of me, I was six years old, this is when we lived in Belgium, and I'm sitting in this big overstuffed chair with headphones on, <laughs> holding Aretha Franklin uh, live at the Fillmore West. <laughs> Charles Sullivan actually if you look at Sun Reporters you see ads that Charles took in the paper saying that you know if you had an event of some sort the, the hall was for hire he would have of course off nights and so it was a way to make money on those off nights mm -hmm. so you know when Graham approached him it was just another guy that wanted to rent the hall so he said yes and it was such a, it was actually, my, ironically, the day my sister was born, December 10th, 1965, so huh. I remember it. Uh, you know, it's a day I always remember because of my sister's birthday. And so, you know, it was such a success that he asked to do it again. And that's how it started. There's a wrestler around the corner calling Eugene's a Chinese wrestler. I didn't know Bill Grimm except a person, you know. Yeah. He was always in there with a scratch pad built that thing himself. He didn't work for Sullivan. Well, Took over after Sullivan was long gone. I loaned him money on the jukeboxes Bill Graham to open that place. 
we still had the control of the music block industry. The, the way that operated, you were going in business, you didn't have as much as you needed to get to various things. So we said, all right, you put our box in there and we'll loan you $5,000. And the way we get paid back is, you know, you split 50-50. You would we'd get our 50 and you would give us your 50 on your, your obligation. I did that for Bill Graham. That's how he got started. He didn't have a quarter. But it is clear that, and Bill said as much, and he says this in his, in his autobiography, that Charles had an enormous influence on him. Because it wasn't Bill Graham that had those connections to John Lee Hooker or Muddy Waters or any of the other black acts that would open for the Jefferson Airplane or the Grateful Dead. It was that Charles Sullivan had brought them to the Fillmore as part of the tours that he'd set up. Mm-hmm. And it was a way for these guys to stay an extra night in San Francisco and make money by opening for these white hippie acts. That's really it had nothing to do with Bill Graham being this innovator and thinking this up himself. Right. It, it had everything to do with his access to bands and musicians through his relationship with Charles Sullivan, who was the leaseholder and dance hall license holder of the Fillmore Auditorium. Mm-hmm. You know, when when I first would read accounts of Bill's career, it was not often mentioned, which I just thought was um, appalling. You, you were in line to succeed uh, Bill Graham. I don't know about that. Now I can't even keep my eyes open after 9.30 at night, so I'm being a pretty terrible nightclub owner in my older years, that's for sure. Well, you would have retired at some point, but you could have had a a nice 25-year career uh, booking acts. That's true. Oh, but then it would have been, you know, Live Nation would have soaked you up. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I can compete. I'm grateful for you allowing me to to talk about this. It's, you know, I it, it's been my whole adult life has been looking at the film where it's kind of crazy. I mean, 22 to almost 56, and here I am wow. <laughs> still yeah. talking about the film Yeah, so grateful for my friendship and collaboration with Lou. I don't. I definitely feel that the project would have not been as good if we hadn't met, for sure. I mean, his restoration of the photos, many of which were severely damaged, you know, his, his unearthing of the photographs that were once on Red's walls and in Reggie Pettis' back room, I mean, you know, it's incredible. And it was great when we met in this another amazing friendship that came out of the Fillmore research. Uh, a little bit I know in 1964 when someone said, come on, let's go to the black neighborhood. And I went to this place that was jumping the street, Fillmore, yeah. that uh, that would be the beginning of this really long journey, which I'm almost sure is not over yet. You know what? I bet in the last 10 or 15 years, I've said to myself about five times, all right, that's it. I'm done, and it, it, 
never is because that sort of new things keep coming up. And I literally all the time, we either get inquiries or someone will say, oh, I know who that is or ask who it is. And we do a research. It's, you know, it's, it's, I think as Elizabeth said, it, uh, our, our uh, collaboration has really been uh, pretty powerful. Um, a, a great sort of symbiotic relationship because they're, uh, like I always say, she remembers facts that I've long forgotten. <laughs> but actually, we were both actually commenting to was the fact that we are still speaking to each other. <laughs> we actually, yeah, it's been really smooth, you know, and, and I think that, so it, it it's, um, you know, those things don't always work because everybody's got different agendas. But I think the fact that we both were really, it was really important to, get, to sort of get this story out and make sure the story was right and make sure we were helping people tell their stories. And that's really what we've been doing is, is allow, sort of providing the vehicle for people to tell this story that had been absolutely erased off the face of the, at least off the public face of the earth. And I think that has always been the sustaining uh, thing that connects us. And I, I think that's, that's uh, absolutely the truth. Good night. The show's producers, Christina Lett and Renata Mitchell. They really love the music, don't they? They sure do. Satchmo says that playing ragtime is like talking from the heart. It doesn't lie. Special acknowledgement to Carol Chamberlain for the use of voices Peter Fitzsimmons, Merle Sanders, Dewey Redmond, and Earl Watkins. Jack Hammer's daughter, Sandra McGee. John Trumpet's companion, Rosalie. This is community-sponsored content, and it's supported by the community and the public at large. Feel free to hit that support button and join us. More content can be seen at planetfillmore.tv, which is also accessible right here on this podcast platform. Look for the little button just above the features that says website. Click it and enjoy a whole host of materials from the Planet Fillmore Orbit. Features, stories, and profiles on how our lives matter. This program has been made possible with the support of Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors, the Village Project of San Francisco, the African American Historical and Cultural Society of San Francisco, the Mary Crisp Arts in the Hood, Anna and Joseph F. Bonnie Simon, the Joseph L. Smith Family Traditions, the Spears Gallery, Art and Tours, the National Coalition of 100 Black Women in San Francisco, the Afro Solo Theater Company, Wright Enterprises, the L. Doris Cameron Family, the Karen Johnson Family, the Noah Griffin Family, First Family of Philadelphia, George Crippen, Charles Dixon, Carol and Lawrence Gray, Association of Midnight Basketball Leagues of America. Maxine Hickman, the late Lurie Baker, Professor Raymond Hobart, the Maxwell family, Polly's Kitty Care, Trinity Foster Family Services of the Bay Area, Linda, Greg, and James Parker Pennington, the St. John's Will I Am Coltrane Global Spiritual Community and African Orthodox Church. Some of the music heard accompanying in this feature included Bob City era Charlie Parker, F. Allen Smith, the Ray Charles Orchestra, Vintage Motown Funk Brothers, Benny Benjamin and Earl Van Dyke, the David Hardeman Big Band, 
featuring arrangements by Frank Fisher, Sam Peoples contributed Transitions, Earl Davis and the Detroit Brain Stretching Medicine Band, and Fillmore's own son from Shasta Lodge, the late Bobby Spider Webb. I'm Lance Burton. These stories are powered by Planet Fillmore Communications. From Black Wall Street in Tulsa to Harlem of the West in San Francisco to Fillmore. Greetings. I'd like to introduce you to the Fillmore Jazz Ambassador. Please allow me to take you back, way back, to a sentimental journey. I was there when jazz came alive. I remember. I cried when I heard the first note. I love the music. Ella, Dizzy, Duke, Miles, Billy, Louis, Jules Broussard, Al Dubrow, Sarah, John Handy, Johnny Mathis. I used to hear historic music when I walked down Fillmore Street, but not anymore. I miss it. My dream is to bring jazz back and restore the legacy of the Fillmore cultural environment. I am Darlene Roberts, founder and CEO of Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We are a team of professional jazz historians and musicians offering workshops and workshop presentations that commemorate and celebrate the Fillmore Jazz era once known as Harlem of the West. Come visit us at www.fillmorejazzambassadors.org. Thank <laughs> you.